Hello and welcome back to our Why It Works series of podcasts with Joe Thompson and Dr Robert Sharples. We are focusing today on the topic of school community and what that looks like for your EAL learners in school. So we all know um, that you can celebrate sort of certain days and things and but we're talking today about how that can be sort of a whole ethos within school and not just sort of an add-on. So Joe, what would you say about celebrating sort of language diversity in school without just being an add-on for a particular day? How can that be created? Hi, yeah, no, I think it's really important that it's part of your school ethos, your whole school ethos. So it's seen as it's just something as that's part of what you do every day um, and isn't something additional or special that you do. It's just part of your kind of everyday daily routine. Um, I think there's lots of different ways that you you can do that. I think it's a lot to do with the communications that you have in school. So I think the communication that goes on internally amongst staff and what you do to value languages and how that how that works in your school but also how you communicate externally so how do you communicate with your parents your carers your families the wider community what links do you have with kind of those around you um so I think there's a lot that schools can do um to incorporate into their daily daily routine really um, and where would you start if somebody hasn't got that sort of in place and maybe they're a new EL coordinator, what strategies would you offer them to start with first? Like if it was their first day tomorrow, okay. where can they start? <laughs> okay. Um, I think it's about getting, sharing that vision with your with your school. So hopefully that's the vision that everybody has at your school, but it might not be the case. And it, it's probably something that they haven't, um, they wouldn't necessarily be doing on purpose they probably just haven't considered how they can do that or how they can how they can do that better um so I'd look at things like um first of all how many languages do you have in your school what are they and uh where are they displayed are they are they displayed is a good question to ask yourself um often ask people on training courses how many languages are spoken in their class or their school and they'll tell me and they'll know and then I say how many languages are displayed in your classroom and in your school and then that often is a different answer and then they reflect on that and they and then we kind of have a discussion as as to why that is so I think that's the first first thing is valuing it getting it seen um, enabling children to share their learning in their different languages enabling those languages to be displayed around the school in the class um, I think that's the number one thing to start off with but obviously there's loads there's loads more that you can do yeah, and what would you say, Rob, in your experience? Yeah, I've, I've got a bit of a bugbear. I mean, I agree with everything Joe said. But I've got this bugbear about walking to a school and seeing the word welcome in 20 languages mm. around the reception area. And then someone escorts you to meet the EL coordinator. You go down three corridors, out the playground, across the playground, back around past the loos and the bike chairs, and you find some porter cabin on the far, far side of the moon. And... The, the display of different languages and different cultures and of, of who the students are is really important, but it's got to be authentic and it's got to really reflect mm. what's actually happening in school. And so I think sometimes when we have that very visible display of inclusion and, and the, the diversity of our, of our communities, I think for a lot of school leaders it stops there. And I, I think you're absolutely right, Joe, to talk about that ethos and values and, it, it's got to be part of the purpose of the school to serve this community and, and something people talk about. 
you know, this, this is why we're here. And I think really successful schools that I get to visit are ones where that, that mission is written through everything they do. And so the visible stuff just comes out of it quite naturally rather than starting with how do we make it more visible. Um, in terms of a new person coming to post, it's really hard because what a lot of people face a lot of the time is, is um, supporting new arrivals and the, the urgent needs of these pupils overtakes everything. I'm a big fan of um, really unflashy, unexciting, like plumbing type stuff like if the plumbing works you don't notice it if it doesn't work you really do so first of all you know who are the pupils in the school which member of slt is responsible for your work who you're accountable to what policies are there in place if not we need to get writing some and and once you've got a sense of who the learners are then there's that next question of how to group them because knowing the learners in terms of the range of languages spoken the the educational histories and so on isn't by itself that useful because it's too atomized what we need to know are what are the groupings that we have a curricular response to. So we might say new arrivals, for example. Um, we need a different response compared with, say, um, well-established learners with good literacy skills on, on the upper stages of proficiency. And this is somewhere I think that a lot of people struggle to articulate that next step. So they'll know exactly who their learners are and be able to describe the demographic, but not say what the groups are. And it might be that you've got one or two or three different EL groups that maybe need one, two, three different EL approaches. So I'd be trying to work out that, like, what are the groupings that require a distinct curriculum response? And then and then what is that response for each one? Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? So with the visibility being authentic and then putting those two things together and making that work in your school and making SLT aware of what's going on and mm. I guess making sure you've got an EAL coordinator in post as well even to begin with and to make sure somebody is um, supporting all those people within school um, and then it, we come on to parents and how we can make sort of parents with EAL feel welcome and how can we create those links with newly arrived families Have you got any experience of that Joe, within the schools you've worked in? Hmm. Yes so I think the induction process um, especially for um, new arrivals, any new arrivals hopefully to a school will go through an induction um, process. It might look slightly different if you're coming um, from a different country. Um, but what is the induction process at your school? Hopefully that involves um, the school gathering as much data and information as they, as they can about um, the learner, the families, the circumstances, the journey to the school, the education they've had prior to arriving, the journey they've been on to get to your school. So hopefully that's all that's all happened. Um, but I also think it's just those relationships and building those relationships. So who is it that those children are going to be seeing every day? I used to just stand on the I so I used to be teaching these children, but stand on the gate in the morning and just saying hello to the same people every morning so that the parents the children know who I am because I'm teaching them but then you start to see the children saying to the oh you know that's so-and-so she's you know in their in their language and I you know didn't always understand but I could tell that they were talking and pointing at me so they're obviously having a conversation around me and I think that that is the starting of that's the start of building those relationships so that then conversations later become easier 
Um, and I also think think about how you invite when, how and when you invite parents into school and try and make it quite low stakes to begin with. Because you've got to remember that if these parents and carers and families are new to learning English, they possibly might be reluctant to come into school. Um so think about the reasons that you're asking them in. So we used to do things like we'd have open classroom yeah. coffee mornings. We used to run English sessions, but we kept them all quite informal because we wanted people to come. We didn't want them to be worried or intimidated or feel that they um, would be worried about coming in. So we tried to make them quite low stakes um, to encourage them in. And, and and that worked and that was that was quite successful. Um but like it, it like I said, I think in previous podcast, it doesn't. That doesn't happen overnight. I'd stand on the gate for days, for days, for weeks, for weeks. I'd yeah. go to some of these sessions, and not a lot of people would turn up. It takes takes a lot of work. I think a lot of trust developing those relationships to get the buy in from from the parents, carers, and the families. Yeah, I remember hosting a coffee morning and a, like sort of coffee and cake morning, and being the only one there for the first month. <laughs> <laughs> Carrying on, um, yeah. I mean, I did, I did that a few times, but then you keep, you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, and then we had really successful, you know, and parents would meet other parents from similar places to them that they didn't know existed, and they'd form these just by giving them those opportunities. You're opening up the floor for for different things to happen, and I think that's, I think that's really important thing for a school to to do if it wants to be at the heart of its community. Yeah, building those relationships that they can carry on outside of school for support. And things like that are really important as well, aren't they? Um, and do you create school sort of language profiles, Joan? What would you include on those? You know, sort of. Um, I think it's images in school. I think that goes back to the communication that happens internally. So I think, like Rob said, you've got to know who your learners are. The teachers need to know, but the whole school staff needs to know. So how is it recorded on your, um, you know, systems that you, if you use Sims or whatever system that it is you use in school how are those learners recorded on there what information is available to everybody that's going to need to have it and it's not necessarily just going to be the teachers I'm thinking particularly around lunchtime we made sure that our kind of lunchtime team were just as aware as the teachers and the teaching assistants were as to who these learners were and what what they might need um, and yeah language profiles can be an important important part of that and that's an important piece of work to do with the child and getting to know them um, but I also think it's to do with where that where that information goes to help everybody across across the school it's no good like Rob said it's just sitting with the teacher or the EAL co- coordinator or whoever it needs to it needs to be everywhere yeah Rob have you seen those language profiles being used successfully in schools or yeah, yeah. Um, by all kinds of names, actually, language profiles, language passports, kind of learner logs, and so on. Um, so, I think a really, a really helpful way to approach it is think: what is this information going to do, and who's going to mm. use it? And focusing on the use of the information rather than the collection of it. This is again, it, it's where a really good EL policy um, or procedure comes in. So. Um, you mentioned about, uh, Joe, about connecting with the community and then we think, okay, well, how is that information as well going to enter the school? And a lot of it will be when a child enrolls yeah. and there'll be a questionnaire. So we might go back to think, okay, well, who is who is doing that interview? Who's collecting that information? 
the school business manager or the, the person responsible for data is quite a good contact for this one, actually, because they're the ones who are making sure that the school management information system, SIMS or whatever you use, um, is up to date. So we'll know from SIMS that, that you can have you know, a very large number of language codes and ethnicity codes, but they won't all be used. It's either yourself, probably, or it's um, one of the admin team who's... Uh, recording that information. So, okay, so what do they know? Let's say it's an administrator. What do they know about the, the range of languages that children speak? Are they aware that parents will often report um, a regional language? For example, Hindi is a very common example in, in um, South Asia. Rather than uh, the language they speak, they stay, which they might see as a, as a less um, valuable regional dialect or might only have a spoken and not a written form and so on as linguists um, and as el people we we're not really bothered by that because we know that high quality language development doesn't have to involve a, a written form for example but people often culturally feel a pressure to report something a bit more prestigious so we we need to know to ask those kind of probing questions and one way i've seen that done really well is where schools don't ask what languages do you speak in general, but ask um, maybe what languages do you speak, but also what language do you speak to the grandparents in? What language does the child speak to you in? And and focusing on the use of different languages, because that creates space for people to report what they think the school wants to know, which is the more prestigious language, but also to give the richness of that heritage and a pick up all the different languages and how they're used. So... Tweaks like that, but but thinking through that process, making sure we're collecting it, and then, okay, once the administrator or yourself has done that interview or collects that information, um, where does it go to? And very often it sits on a Google Drive or a OneDrive or somewhere else and doesn't get used. So you might have a pro forma that could be written up. And I really like the idea of sending a note in the register or however your school does it, um, not with just information about the child who's just arrived, but about how to teach them. So it could be this child just arrived from Ukraine. They're a Russian speaker, a Ukrainian speaker. Um, they had pretty good age-appropriate education until the past year. So please seat this child with a high-achieving peer because while their language might not be there, it's really important they see themselves as high achievers and they want to maintain that. The best way to do that is to be in a high-achieving peer group. Please direct questions to this child, even though they might not be able to respond. Um, because that will allow them to be engaged with the subject content as well. Please wait until at least a count of 20 before moving on, because it really takes quite a lot of time. I can see, because we've got a little video here as well, I can see Joe nodding nodding at that one particularly. So I think taking, taking some of those strategies, making sure you collect that information and using that then to give really straightforward prompts. And the aim of that is that your colleagues across the school don't have to become Yale specialists, because they've got you know, huge skills and, and experience and expertise in teaching children. Really, you're telling them, okay, of your teaching skills, of your strategies, what ones are going to work best with this child? And that means that people can do much better work with newly arrived children than they thought they'd be capable of because we focus on the language and the difference and the gap and, and that worry. But just saying, okay, you, you use these techniques, use these skills, you've got them already. You can get really good results for including and building community as well. Uh, the only other thing that I'd, um, I'd say, and I, I recommend this very often, buddying schemes. Buddying schemes are so important for new arrivals. And if you're not sure what to use, 
or don't fancy designing one, I'd recommend the Hampshire Young Interpreters Scheme. It works if you've got first language peers or if you haven't as well. Monolingual English children are, are very able to do it. Um, it's, it's popular, it's successful, it's dead cheap, um, and it works really well. So if in doubt, I would definitely stick a budding scheme on there, and I would, I'd use that one as a, a starting point unless you fancy developing your own. Yeah, I'd second that. I've used that one in the past with my school as well, and it was brilliant. Yeah. Really straightforward as well. You know, if, somebody, if you've got a lot going on and everything else is pretty complicated, they sent like a really good pack through and it was just really easy to follow, which was really good. Um, that's a brilliant advice. I think it's a really good idea to put it in the register or whatever, because like you say, some of those notes and passports and things never get opened. But if it was three bullet points of how practical strategies I think that'd be really worthwhile, especially in secondary as well, where that child might be going through every subject. You you get, so going back to what I mentioned earlier about um, what the different curricular responses are, and that might be a sort of high fluting way of saying, you know, what what particular types of provision you're going to offer. But you you might think in each one about um, like a menu of options. And you could get to the point if, even if your your pupil population is not stable, if it's highly kind of dynamic, lots of arrivals, lots of departures, saying, okay, well, well what do we do for um, you know, kids who are arriving and, and potentially not staying that long? What do we do for the pupils who have been here a long time? And if you can break it down, not by language group or nationality or anything else, but by what kind of um, response they need from you and from the school, then you can you can basically codify a lot of it. And over time, your colleagues get, get pretty comfortable with it. Say, oh, this is a new arrived pupil. Okay, steps one, two, and three. You could even simplify it like a tick sheet. Um, but if you have almost like a, a, a menu, <laughs> if you like, of what your offer for these children is going to be, that might simplify it a bit too much for you. If you're listening to this podcast, you, you probably are very engaged in the details and the nuances and, and, and are thinking about it in much more detail. Most of your colleagues, and definitely your school leaders, won't be. So might be oversimplified for the EAL person. But actually, that, that massive simplification is something that other people can feel really confident with and gives them a stepping stone to, to build up more. So you could even see this kind of welcoming environment as a, as a quite direct step towards whole school CPD. Yeah, definitely. And that was another question I was going to ask about CPD and what CPD is available to support teachers in either sort of school communication or working with parents. Joe, have you got any ideas on that one? I think just look at the the means that you use to communicate with your parents. What does this, what does the school use? Is there some way that you can make your website um, available in different languages? I know that's something that a previous school of mine um, had done if you're if you've got the use of ipads or tablets and you can you can use apps there's some really good apps um really good translation apps say hi is a really good one and depel is another really good one that that can help that kind of just everyday um communication i suppose um we use immersive reader quite a lot that's available on office online office um and it can translate and read into lots of different languages um, that can be really helpful. But look at what your school use. I think Dojo have a, a translatable option when you're posting messages about what the children have done. Kind of so um, 
can you can you translate messages can they translate messages how are you sending that information home we used to have an app that was quite visual um it didn't offer translation but the it was all very visual and very obvious as to what it meant um so look at the different ways that you communicate with parents and see how you, how you can kind of optimize the messages you're sending home so that the parents and the carers can understand. I'd say also the same goes for the curriculum and what you're learning. If you can get that information out there as well, um, I think you'll find that parents and carers are quite engaged and quite, you know, what they want to know what their children are learning at school. And they'll, you know, some of them go out of their way to help to help them with that. But they can only they can only do that if they're receiving the information in a way that they can understand. So as well as just the kind of survival stuff and the day-to-day stuff also think about how you're presenting the curriculum and and the learning that you're doing in school so that the parents and the carers have that same information they've got that opportunity to support you with that yeah they're really practical ideas joe which are really good the um twinkle symbols are also working behind the scenes with um twinkle symbols at the moment to create el resources sort of visual communication boards aren't we joe which might be good for parents as well in the future yeah, the sim. I think the symbols app is is really helpful, especially if you're thinking about new arrivals and ways of communicating um, with them. That's a really useful tool. Again, if you've got a tablet or an iPad or something, that's something that yeah, be a good one to look free into. As well, I, think. I think at the moment. Um, I think while it's being developed, so yeah, yeah, we'll see. Um, and practical strategies um, for parents to support home learning, Rob. Have you got any advice on practical strategy we can offer for that? Well, maybe we can all say it together. One, two, three. Don't tell parents that they have to use English at home. <laughs> it's um, yeah. I do, un- yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, I had a podcast last week with Denise um, Amanko and she just couldn't believe because she mm. went to the EYFS. So the amount of parents that just they want to tell you oh we speak English at home we speak English at school and that's the end of it and she's just so upsetting me when she goes home to Ghana it was just you know killing so many cultures and diversity and everything else yeah it's just um it's uh unbelievably destructive and and pointless I just think you know drop me in Beijing and ask me how well I'm going to talk to the kids (laughs) the answer is no I can't you know I don't speak that language how, how could I possibly, no, it's an, it's an absolute non-starter if you flip it around. Um, you know, for Beijing, really, any, any country whose language I don't speak. Um, so number one, really support the use of different languages at home. And I think you've just got to go with the family, you know. A lot of, um, a lot of families have ways of using language that might seem quite complex to a monolingual ear. And, you know, you might have... One parent speaks one language, another parent speaks another language. Other languages are used for, for extended family or for religious purposes or for all sorts of things. In the world as a whole, that's pretty standard, to be honest. I think we, we've, we've got an unusually monolingual corner of the globe that we live in. And even then, as this podcast shows, that you know our corner of the globe isn't that monolingual, just some of us are. So whatever language the family uses, don't be worried about it leading to lower proficiency. Don't be worried about it leading to, to lower overall attainment. The evidence is that it, it doesn't in you know the vast majority of cases the ones where it does are quite specific um supporting high quality language use um in all the child's languages is really important so if 
mum is reading in language A, let's have lots of good quality stories in language A. Let's make sure the kids have got books that they're read to. Some cultures emphasise more oral storytelling rather than print literacy. If the stories are being retold by a grandparent and not out of a book, that's fine. It's still high quality language development. If dad's doing the same language, different language, etc. If one parent's more available than the other, I think going with how the family lives their family life, but just really trying to support high quality um, language in the home, of course, and in the school is going to be, is really important. So obviously we don't, want to make every home the responsibility of the teacher. So what can we do in concrete terms? Number one, are there lots of books in those languages um, in the school? Do we talk about them? Do we make them visible? Do you send first language books home occasionally? So lots of lots of reception teachers and others will, will send home a new book every week, um, often very, very tied to phonics. And we feel a lot of pressure to keep pushing forward with that. But there's also opportunities additionally even occasionally instead, like the odd week isn't, isn't actually going to kill us, um, to send home first language books. And just showing that those languages are really valued and showing the school has those kind of books. If you don't, the local libraries usually do. Um, I'm, I'm, I live in Bristol and um, just when, when the, the invasion of Ukraine was, was starting, the, the, <laughs> the local library had a whole display of, of Ukrainian books. And uh, I asked the librarian, making professional interest, I said, oh, um, I know she's got these Ukrainian books. Are they because of what we see in the news? And the person <laughs> looked up and said, oh, what, what? No, no. And I think there's just the publisher had made a load of books on special offer because they saw what was happening on news. And libraries across the country were getting these stocks in. Um, you know, it's all out there. We can ask um, community groups, faith groups, Saturday schools. They'll all have things that, that we can connect with. So just making sure that, that the things that we ask for we're not insisting on them to exclusion of everything else because lots of children are developing literacy through faith, through um, storytelling, and not necessarily, especially in primary, through the kind of print literacy that always works in schools. But supporting it, encouraging it. Can we get parents in to, to help with events telling stories in other languages? Can children create bilingual storybooks? Um, Mantra lingua are very, very good. They can have beautiful bilingual stories printed up including ones that children design there's loads of apps you can use as well so long story short high quality language development is the absolute driver here um anything that we can do to support that and to show that we support it and to show that those languages have a place in the curriculum not just in the school is really really powerful i could um, i'm going to stop so i could go on about this one for hours um <laughs> I, it's just it is it's so important more than anything to recognize that to get a high quality output if you like mm. in english you'll do best by supporting the children's languages across the board we think we have to keep things separate yeah. and that the way to the way to really develop english is to focus in english and that works to an extent but it doesn't drive the lifelong high attainment or the whole curriculum high attainment you're looking for so having space for all those languages is the, the absolute best way to support high attainment in English and everything else. Yeah, amazing. Brilliant. Um, I love Mantralinga as well. That's just stuck out to me then. But their, their books are beautiful. Mm. Um, Joe, have you got anything to add to that? Because I think Rob has done an amazing job there. <laughs> yeah, just only a couple of things. Mantralingua, definitely echo that. They've also got those um, talking pens, which if, you yeah. haven't got anyone else in your kind of school community that speaks a, 
a certain language and the child is new to English, I've put that on a couple of times, loaded up the pen, child's face when they hear their language coming through the pen. It's lovely. So, yeah, Mantraling were definitely um, ones to look out for. They do lovely books as well. But I'd also say, think about when we're talking about learners, think about um, if the children are attending a supplementary school or a complementary school, um, often they are. And I don't know that schools always always know that that goes on. That sometimes happens in the evenings. It can happen at weekends. They sometimes go for um, religious reasons, for language purposes. You know, loads of different um, types of schools that these children are attending um, outside the the time that we spend with them. So I think it's really important that we as as teachers and as, as people working in education are understanding that whole child and that whole family. Um, like Rob said, where are the languages spoken? Which languages are spoken? Where are they spoken and why? Um, yeah. It's got to be a holistic approach. It can't just be here we speak this and there we speak, you know, it all it all affects and it all relates to one another so I think it's really important that teachers try and find that out from there and just ask the children they'll tell you um they just probably haven't been you know they don't always talk about it necessarily because I think sometimes they see it as a separate thing um and I think I think it's helpful if we can see it all as yeah it all works together doesn't it so it's helpful for us to to find those things out as well um it kind of brings us back full circle doesn't it we're talking about that that welcoming learning environment and mm. you know, making sure that children's lives are written up on the walls. Um, but here it's, it's sort of going beyond those walls that, that I, mean, I think you would be well, if you wanted to drop into one of the Saturday schools or, or sort of evening classes and so on that, that a lot of kids go to, you would be welcomed. Mm. You know, I think that they would be absolutely delighted to know the school was taking mm. an interest. And just being able to make that connection and being being seen bridging them is is going to be mm. so important. Um, let alone, as, as Joe's talking about, all the different ways that that you can that you can connect the literacy that's happening across the both. But but just just I guess encouraging people to be confident, be confident with children using other languages, as we've said. Um, it's not it's not going to lead to adverse outcomes. It's not the, the big one. I, I I don't know how you feel, Joe and Helen, but. The big one that I hear a lot is there's no time. There's no time because it, it becomes like a, a quite a quite intense discussion about this last week with someone. It, it becomes a zero sum game that any time we take out of um, driving through the curriculum um, to to work with different languages or, or whatever, it means. You have to weigh a benefit. Like, what am I losing from the curriculum? Am I going to mm. I going to get them to where they need to be? Yeah. Um, is it is it worth the sacrifice? And I think it's really important to 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 not think of it in terms of zero sum. What comes out of one bit of the curriculum, what goes in one place, has to come out of another place. But actually, supporting children's languages across the board makes it work better across the board. And so. You're, you're not you're not going to lose pace or coverage, um, and you're not going to retard the children's um, development of English. I'll just give a really good example of that, if I could. We often measure vocabulary in bilingual children and find they have smaller vocabularies than their monolingual peers, and that causes concern. But if you think about it, we only test them in one language, so of course we do. Um, 
Children who speak two languages, their, their vocabulary development is going to be split across those languages. Not necessarily evenly, because it depends on the, the patterns of language use in their lives. But you'll find that their language, their vocabulary, for example, is, is split across both languages. But there's no upper limit to vocabulary development. So we know that that, that difference will quickly resolve itself, that their vocabulary will basically outgrow the constraint. But especially in the early years and, and in Key Stage 1, um, it's developmental. Children learn one word, then the next, and that grows, and so on. So it's not to be put off by things like that. And, and just to recognize that um, a multilingual vocabulary is richer because the connections between those language systems and between the vocabulary and the concepts and the experiences are more complex. There's more stuff to have more links between. So on balance, it's a real advantage. And children can and do use that knowledge, that experience, those languages in their curriculum. So it's not just having two words for Apple. It's having a richer range of, of conceptual as well as linguistic connections to, to draw in their learning. So just the idea that, you know, getting involved with, with complementary schools, I'm sure you'll be welcomed. Um, being confident with children using their other languages purposefully is, is something to be welcomed. And it is going to have a benefit even across the scale of a school year. So it's not like you'll do the work what you're judged on will suffer and someone else will pick up the benefits later. Even in the scale of a term of the year, you'll see those benefits. So just embracing the languages that the children use and trying to capitalise on them for your learning, I think is, is an unalloyed good. There's, there's very little downside and a lot of upside to it. Yeah, definitely. Have you got anything to add, Joe? I think just what message does it give the children as well? I don't see it as a taking in or losing out that the message that you're giving to children when you're hearing their languages and valuing their languages and their culture and their heritage and everything else that is so powerful and that is that's the kind of messaging we want to be giving out to our children um whether you miss 10 minutes of geography or history or science or, or whatever it is to do that that for me that message is more important than those five minutes of those subjects that you might feel that you've you've just missed because you've had this extra conversation I want schools to f be full of conversations like that I think they're so so rich for, for us as teachers for the children in the class but also for the the children themselves and their families and if that child goes home and says to their their parents or their carers or whoever it is at home you know do you know what this teacher took an interest in this today and it made me feel like this then what does that make the you know the parents and the carers feel and then when you see them on the gate the next morning are you going to have a better you know interaction because they know something you know about what you did at school yesterday with their child I just think all of that is so that's so important and that's, well, it's one of the reasons I became a teacher. Yeah. So you, you, you can treat you've it got as a to hold on to that. Yeah. No, that's really important, Joe. It is, it is really powerful. And the reason why you become a teacher, that's what you've got to remember, isn't it, why you're there and not just trying to race through the curriculum, but trying to build the whole child, aren't you? It's holistic, isn't it? And it's it's lifelong as well. It's like Rob said, it's not a case of let's get this, I don't know, geography GCSE right now. What are we teaching these these children and these learners that are, are lifelong skills? And that's that's important too, I think. Sorry, Joe, I cut you off at the end there because the, the sound dropped and I, <laughs> I, thought, uh, <laughs> I thought it stopped and you hadn't, apologies. But I was that's just going to say okay. you can treat it like a safeguarding issue because if children aren't confident that, that you want to hear it, in all aspects of them. You know, if you have a strict English only policy, 
children with developing English are much less likely to report safeguarding concerns if they have mm. to do it through perfect English. Whereas if you show that you're someone who's open to all their languages, you don't have to speak those languages, but, but exactly as you say, they'll know that you're open to them. Mm. And, and, and be flexible about how they communicate stuff. So I think that for me, that, that's a, a helpful argument. <laughs> it's a bit of a sideways argument, really, but, it, but it's one that seems to work with people who aren't receptive to the sort of things we're talking about here. That one tends to cut through. Yeah. Um, Definitely. Well, I hope we've um, offered some real practical um, sort of advice there and okay. ideas for you to take forward in building that school community and that school ethos and that you can take that on for the rest of this academic year and hopefully into September as you're getting ready for September. We have one more episode um, in this series which will be towards the end of the year Um, and then also look back at our back catalogue of um, sort of podcasts and episodes that we've got. They are now all on the website which is brilliant but also you can obviously listen to them on any streaming platform going forward thank you both as always brilliant advice and brilliant ideas and i'll see you soon this podcast was brought to you by helen bodell from twinkle eal we have over nine hundred thousand resources and you can find all of our eal resources at www.twinkle.co.uk You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and Pinterest by searching Twinkle EAL. Why not subscribe to our podcast? You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music and redcircle.com. You can also now find all of our podcasts on our website. You could also leave us a review. If you have any questions you'd like answering on our podcast, please get in touch on our social channels.